encourage you to do two things. In your bulletin is an outline, whether you use it or not. Uh, there's always something in there each week. Please pull it out. You're going to want it. I basically filled it in for you today because there's so much information. And I, I encourage you actually to keep this in your Bibles between chapters 9 and 11 of the book of Romans, where I would encourage you to turn. And we are going to be looking at these remarkable chapters in the book of Romans. Now, uh, we have been on this journey from here to there, beginning uh, back in September, and uh, using the book of Romans to help us understand that. And the first picture that we used to kind of capture the essence of what was happening in uh, chapters 1 through 3 was a messed up road. It was all busted up. It was terrible. Why even go on this journey? And what we had to find out was that God was sharing his love to us in such a way as to say, this is not it. This is not where I intend you to be. I want to move you on into something so much greater. So that was the first picture, this road that was just a mess. That was the first three chapters. That's the mess that we find ourselves in, if we're honest. And God's answer to that is, is sharing his love for us, not beating us over the head, but understanding exactly where we are and saying, why don't we move on? So the next picture that captured uh, the next chapters, the end of chapter 3 through the chapter 6, was a beautiful road. And it was promising of all the things that God wants to give us in answer to this. He was extending forgiveness. So he shared love, and now he's extending forgiveness to us, explaining the elements of this gospel message of Jesus Christ coming to solve our problem. Then when we get to chapter 7, through the rest of the book, we see God explaining purpose of all that's going on. We can begin to understand now. Once we've gotten out of our mess and he, and he has extended forgiveness to us, he, he begins to, to raise our eyes to see the whys and the hows. I should really say the what's and the hows. You're going to see that in a minute. Of what he's doing. Explaining purpose in the journey. Helping us understand that there is still the goal. We're not there yet. That's what chapter 7 and 8 were about. Aren't we there yet? No. No, we're not. Because God has to explain to us in these chapters what he expects and what he accomplishes. So we saw kind of the human side in chapter 7 and 8 of the book of Romans. What God wants us to be a part of. What he expects of us. The human side of getting there on the journey. But now we want to turn to the divine side of getting there. And what God is doing as he moves us forward. What God actually accomplishes. Some of this is about what he expects of us. But some of it, grand part of it, is about what he is accomplishing that he wants us to see and just marvel over. So my picture has changed to this more panoramic view. The road, you can see, is, is way down there in the valley. That's often where we find ourselves and overwhelmed by the circumstances. Every once in a while, it's good to get up high and see a broader picture, a bigger picture of what's going on. A perspective a little more reflective of where God is as he looks out over what's going on. One commentator said of these chapters, 9 through 11, Paul has written up until now so penetratingly on the justification of sinners, of, of solving our problem. Now he turns to the vindication of himself. He reminds us that the Almighty is free and sovereign in what he does. He is God, after all. 
Let's remind ourselves of that. In these chapters now, in these next three weeks, 9 through 11, 9, 10, and 11, are going to help us understand God's plan in getting us there. God has global elements that we must understand. Uh, We need to step back and see every once in a while. It's why we do a missions conference, for example. Every once in a while, step back and see what God's doing all over the world so that we know how we personally can get involved in that. The same thing's happening theologically here. He wants us to see a larger picture so that we can find our place in it. Contrary to popular opinion, we did not invent this uh, globalization thing that's going on. You know, our world just continues to shrink more and more. And I used some illustrations about that. My parents, 65 years ago, going to Africa, taking them three weeks to get there on a boat. Now my daughter can be over there last summer and FaceTime with me at the drop of a hat. I mean, we're, we think we've invented this through our, our, our technology, our rapid travel, economic revolutions, the increased cultural awareness and exchange and, and education experience. We, we think we're pretty cool because we're shrinking the world. Nothing new. God all along has had a plan that at once and at the same time is personal and global, collective. The culmination of his plan is found in Revelation chapter 7, one little glimpse of it, where it says, John, seeing a vision, says, I looked up and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's what God's doing. Every one of those countless numbers of people is incredibly valuable to God, and all of them are there to bring Him honor and glory for His greater purposes. So here's the implication that I want you not to miss, okay? Get this. We must see the big picture collectively so that we can see where we fit personally. And Romans chapter 9 through 11 helps us see that bigger picture. God has a chosen people. They're called the people of Israel, the Jews. And God loves all people. That's us, actually, all the Gentiles. Now, why the distinction? Well, because of the what and the how. The problem and the solution. The what is the problem? Through one man, sin enters the world, and it spreads to all men, to all nations, to all peoples. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. We also see another glimpse of this in Acts chapter 17, where it says, from, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from all of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's the what. There's this problem that through one man who sinned, Sin spread to all men. From one man, he made all the nations of the world, and we all are sinners by nature and by choice. But then there's the how, the solution. God needs one man, then, to solve the problem. So, he brings about one man, Abraham, 
to bring about one nation, the Jews, to bring about the one God-man, Jesus Christ, to take the place of all peoples and provide salvation, the solution. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what we call the gospel. And Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So Romans chapter 9 through 11 is the solution, explains how this is going to happen, the what, and then the how he did it. Now, some people call these chapters the hardest chapters in the Bible. They might well be. We were recently in an elder meeting, and I don't remember the nature of the problem, but it had to do with spreadsheets and money. So somebody who was a wiseacre in the room said, yeah, Barry, why don't you fix that? Um, because they know all too well how, how I do with spreadsheets and money. And so, you know, being my <coughs> cynical... Uh, little too cynical, too fast self, said, um, I'll tell you what, I will. You take Romans 9 through 11 and solve that problem and preach it to the church, and I'll solve the problem with the money and the spreadsheets. And they were quick to say, you got it. It's all yours. No, no, no. You you do the 9 through 11 thing, and we'll fix this thing. And I, I think they've long since fixed it. So now we'll see whether I can make this understandable to you. Because some people say these are the hardest chapters in the Bible. And I'm not going to argue that this is easy. But actually, an essential step in understanding or misunderstanding these chapters is trying to look at any one of them by themselves. They all three go together. And I want to show you that today. It's keeping all these three chapters in mind as we walk through them that will help us understand them. And then actually, it's not all that hard. Trying to understand any one of them without the others is what leads to the great problems that we have among ourselves when we don't understand them. So, let's understand them. And as I said, there in your notes, you, you've got some more than, I'm just, than, than will actually fit on the screen. So you can look at that if you want to, too. And uh, so Romans chapter 9 is about the Jews. Remember, he had, had one man created the problem, so one man had to solve the problem, and he used one man to bring about a nation to bring about that one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so Romans chapter 9 is about the Jews. Romans chapter 10 is about the Gentiles. That's, that's the rest of us, everybody that isn't a Jew. And then Romans chapter 11 is about the Jews and the Gentiles, okay? Romans chapter 9 is about the Jews, and most of you didn't get it. Romans chapter 10 is about the Gentiles, and you can get it. And then... Romans chapter 11 is about many of you will or will not get it, okay? Romans chapter 9, you brought it about. In fact, if I turn there right now, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 4, he says of this people of Israel, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption, the sonship, theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them, listen, is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, the one man, to solve the problem, who is God over all, forever to be praised. Amen. So, you brought it about, you Jews. You Gentiles, you made it your own. He came unto his own, the Jews, 
and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You made it your own. And then, chapter 11, you both, Jews and Gentiles, owe each other for what you have. I'll explain that when we get there to that particular chapter. Israel's past election shows God's character. Chapter 10, that was chapter 9. Chapter 10, Israel's present rejection shows God's purposes. Chapter 11, Israel's future restoration shows God's glory. Now, there's a lesson in each one of these chapters, and we're going to hit one lesson each of these three weeks. And here's the lesson for chapter (laughs) 9. You can't have half of God. You don't want half of God. The lesson in chapter 10 is you can believe you can have it all. It's amazing. And the lesson in chapter 11 is you better get grace and you better walk humbly in it. So, Romans 9 through 11, God's bigger plan. The what? Man created a problem. God has provided a solution. And the how? God chose to solve that problem because of the one man by bringing about one man to bring about one nation to bring about that one man who would solve the problem. So, I have spoken to your head so far this morning, kind of understanding God's greater plan, the what and the how. But now let me speak to your heart. How do you respond to that plan? The why. Often our struggle is the why. Here's a difficult truth, but it's a truth just the same that we get right out of this passage. We cannot presume that we deserve an answer to that question. But why did you do it that way? There is a distinction between who we are and who God is. And it often finds itself most poignantly, if you ask me, most poignantly here with this why. He's God. And we're not. He's all wise and knowing and powerful and perfect and eternal. Newsflash, none of us are any of those. Right? We're none of those, nor will we ever be. Now, what that does not mean, well, what it does mean is that the why, why do you do it that way, is his business. It's not ours. It's his understanding, and it's not ours. Now, that does not mean that there aren't things that we can understand, because he does explain an awful lot, especially about the what and the how. (laughs) What's the problem, and how did I solve it? He explains how good he is, and he's proven that to us over and over. He's perfect. He's loving. He's gracious. He's righteous. He's pure. He's true. And while Part of these chapters contain hard truths that we cannot and we will not ever fully understand. So we go, wait, 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 wait. I got most of it, but there's this. So, so why that? 
while there may be some hard truths in here that we cannot and probably never will fully understand, most of these chapters contain how we should be overcome by this amazing God. He's addressing the what, the problem. He isn't sitting there with his arms folded going, well, you messed it up, you fix it. He shows how incredibly gracious he is to address the issue and then carry out the how of solving that problem. And he allows us into this gracious, eternal love and presence and a meaningful relationship with him. So that's the big picture that we must step back and see. But I don't want you to leave today simply with some kind of grand history lesson. I want you to see how this affects you personally as well. So, Romans chapter 9. Paul actually has some personal and some theological reasons why he writes these chapters. You know, you could argue, you could just jump from the end of chapter 8 to chapter 12. See, chapter 8 ends with this fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and we are more than conquerors with Christ. So why don't we just jump to chapter 12, where we become these living sacrifices, so grateful for what he's done for us, and we enter into this practical part of the book, and we're going to get there. You're going to get into some very practical parts of what it means to be this living sacrifice for God. And why don't we skip all this stuff in the middle that's so hard to understand? Well, because there's some reasons why we should understand that. Some very practical lessons. So Paul has some personal reasons for why he writes this. Paul was considered a traitor by his detractors, by his critics. Now, Paul had been and and still was a Jew. He had been a a persecutor of the Christian church. He'd been a a murderer and a and an accomplice, and he was going around trying to find these people and actually kill them. And then not only does he switch sides when God shows up and just transforms him and makes him one of his disciples and his great apostles, he becomes a champion of the opposite side. So he's really hated by the Jews, and they're out there trying to hunt him down, and he gets stoned, and all kinds of things happen. Now, He had a reputation for all that he'd done, but he wanted to show the proper role of Israel and both his and God's love for his chosen people along with God's continued purposes. He begins this this chapter of 9 by saying, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I could... I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I'd rather die myself and go to hell than have them do it. He isn't, as Barclay says. He's not writing out of anger. He's writing out of heartbreak. After all, he was a Jew himself, as was Jesus himself. So there's some very personal things in this chapter. And Israel's past election shows us God's character and that we can't have half of God. So so this is how he does it. Paul, in this chapter, defends the character of God by showing how Israel's history, their past, magnifies these attributes of God. He doesn't hate you. He's chosen to use you to show himself. And he shows himself through you, Jews, In these four ways, at least, but there's just one suggestion. There's four attributes that we see in this chapter of God. We see faithfulness right away. Stick with me. We're getting to the personal part of this. 
faithfulness. And that's in the first 13 verses. I just read, I read verse 8 and 9. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent of Abraham, that is, who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. God made a promise that he was going to use this man to bless the entire world and through this nation that would come out of him. And that nation, by and large, didn't follow him. They disobeyed him. They over and over walked away from him and he was faithful to them anyway. He kept his promise. And he was tenacious about doing that even if there would only be a remnant of people that would remain faithful to him. So he shows his faithfulness. He shows righteousness and justice. I have listed there two different places and they are distinct, but I'm going to put them together because I think these are inseparable if we're going to understand this in any measure, this righteousness and justice. I begin in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Logical answer, verse 19. One of you will say, well, then why does God still blame us if he's the one that's doing all this? Who's able to resist his will? Verse 20, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same, doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? His judgments, his justice, his righteousness are based upon truth. Romans 3 told us that. Not fairness. Do you know the difference? We think fair is just. Is it? Was it fair for Jesus to die on the cross? Was that fair? I mean, what did he do? Did he deserve that? Of course not. That wasn't fair. But it was just. It was righteous because God decided that that would be the just punishment for sin. You don't want God to be fair. You want him to be just. But justice and righteousness have to be defined by him, the only person who is actually righteous and just. I mean, we might as well let him define it if he's the only one that is, right? So Paul defends God's faithfulness. I never gave up on you no matter what you did to me. And his righteousness and his justice, his being able to determine in all of his sovereignty, perfection, and deity what is right and what is wrong, and that fairness doesn't matter. And then he defends his grace. In verses 30 to 33, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained the goal. Why not? 
because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So he defends his grace, which, which can be pursued. Okay, you're faithful to us no matter what we do to you. You have determined what is righteous and just and how that problem will be solved, and now by grace, I can, through faith, become a child of God. but only by faith, not by anything that I can do to earn that. That's grace, undeserved but effective. So now, here's the personal lesson, okay? We don't mind faithfulness and grace, do we? We don't mind those. Please don't give up on me. God, please don't give up on me. That's faithfulness, right? That's when I screw up again tomorrow. When I doubt that you're good, when I don't trust you, when I say something I shouldn't, when I act in a way I never should, when I, when I do that thing again that just forever besets me and I just can't seem to get over it, please don't give up on me. And does he? No, because he's faithful. He's faithful. He won't. We don't mind that, do we? We don't mind his grace. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I, I, know, I, know you, I know you won't give up on me and you still love me. And it's even better that, wow, you'll forgive me. Please, please would you? I know it's the umpteenth time. Would you forgive me? Of course you will because his grace is sufficient. Right? We don't mind those, do we? No, we don't. And nor should we. I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. We shouldn't. We should bathe the reality of every day in the reality that God is forever faithful and gracious. But we don't like righteousness and justice because God gets to define what's right and what's wrong. We don't get to do that. Well, why does he... Yeah, see, you, you, don't, you don't get to decide that. He's God, and, and you're not. Only he knows what is true, what is righteous, what is just fully. God gets to choose what is right, and God gets to choose and decide who are his and who are not. I don't know about you, but I don't like that. <laughs> I, but it's true. He gets to decide. Oh, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to a saving knowledge of him. He tells us that. But in the end, he knows the heart of man. And he's going to decide who is his and who is not. So here's the deal, the lesson out of Israel's past election here. Most of them didn't get it, but we can learn about God's character in this. You can't have half of God. You can't have half of God. 
He can't only be faithful and gracious. He has to also be righteous and just. What, what, what would be the problem if he was just faithful and gracious? Well, then he would be permissive. He'd be inconsistent with what we know is true. I mean, we know some things are just wrong, right? So let's say you do something that you know it's just wrong. And God just goes, eh, tell you what, we'll just kind of forget about it. Now what's God done? He's become just like us. He's imperfect. That's not right. When some heinous crime happens, don't we want justice? We know what's right. If God were just gracious and faithful, then he'd become just like us. You know, kind of, well, you know, when it comes to our personal selves, you know. And, And then we'd be like, you know, yeah, but in that situation, I want you to do something. Well, Well, if he were only righteous and just, then what? And we all go to hell. Enjoy the ride. Because, folks, you don't stand a chance. We would all be condemned to hell because we would receive what we deserve. And he would never have to solve the problem for us. Why would he? There's no need for mercy and grace and faithfulness. Because you broke my law, you die for that. That would be right and true but not faithful and gracious. You don't get half of God. You don't want half of God. Instead, we want to do, what we want to do is let God be God. Isaiah quotes the Lord this way, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So here's what I posit for you on the screen there. You see it? Since we can't be any of these in any sense, any significant sense, consistently, faithful, righteous, just, gracious. In case I'm wrong, you know, I hate to kind of paint you all real horrible here, but I got a pretty good idea. There isn't anybody in this room that in any significant sense consistently is fully faithful, gracious, righteous, and just, right? So if since we can't be, why don't we let him be all of those things in every sense perfectly, which is exactly what he is. Now, what does that practically mean? I think this is what it means. Stop accusing God with the why. Now, I I don't want you to stop exploring the scripture and digging into the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's the the benediction at the end of Romans chapter 11. We're going to get there. It's awesome. I want us to dig. I want us to find out more. I want us to plumb the depths of what we can learn about our God so so we can ask questions. But I'm talking about the why that goes eh, I don't know about that. Why did you let that happen to me? Why did that have to happen? Didn't happen to anybody else. That kind of why. That kind of, 
I deserve better than this. Kind of why. Jesus, when he left the earth, he left us this with these symbols. Do you know what they're symbols of? They're symbols of the what and the how. They're symbols of a body that took your place on the cross for your sin, the problem. And blood that was shed, the how, to solve that problem. And he said, never forget this. That's why we do it regularly. So we'll never forget. He said, why don't you quit spending your time accusing me on the whys? Focus on the what, your desperate need, and my marvelous solution. Because in that, we will find this marvelous, gracious, loving, just, and true God that we can trust, we can rest in, and we leave the incomprehensible to to the one who is for us never fully comprehensible, right? You can't have half of God. You don't want half of God. So that's what I want you to get today, to get today, and I, and I want you to seal it here as we move into our time of communion. Because at this table, he accomplishes all of this in every sense perfectly. In his body, given for us, we find righteousness and justice perfectly fulfilled in his perfect sacrifice, justly satisfying the price needed for our sin. No winking, no, ah, tell you what, we'll just kind of slide that over. Paying the price, that's justice. And in his blood, we find faithfulness and grace. His blood is sufficient. It continues spiritually to flow for the remission of our sins. Those who committed yesterday, those who commit today, those with even the best of intentions, not to, you, you will commit tomorrow. He's faithful and he's gracious and he offers that forgiveness forever, ushering us into a perfect relationship with that loving Heavenly Father. Isn't that marvelous? It's amazing. Let's focus on the what and the how because that's what he told us to do and never forget. And let's let God be God because we can't be any of these in any sense consistently. So let's let him be all of these in every sense perfectly. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we're just overwhelmed with the amazing truth of what you did and how you did it. Forgive us as we seek to try and understand it and slide into those accusing whys of, yeah, but help us in this day to leave 
to leave those at the cross as well. And may you be praised as we focus on what you did and how you did it so marvelously, so graciously, so sacrificially that we might have this marvelous relationship with you. In Jesus' name.